all great art is impossible, improbable, unlikely, until it's not. Until the wild creative inventor shows up and demonstrates that what you thought couldn't be done can be done. What was beyond the grasp of your imagination suddenly shows up in front of you and blows your mind. The inventors, the unorthodox innovators that are constantly challenging what is and are able to make room for what could be. These are the kind of folks who don't just occasionally visit the borderlands of unknowing. No, they make their home there. Why? Because they know that the more you let go of what you think you know, the more you can invite an imagination that can manifest innovation that has never been seen before. I don't know anyone who has more of that wild creative courage, that ingenuity of masterful inventing than my friend and mentor, Tony Fidel. Tony is an engineer, designer, entrepreneur, and investor. He's invented a small piece of technology you may have heard of, the iPod, and was the co-creator for another piece of technology that might be in your pocket right now that you're probably using to listen to this podcast, the iPhone, and is the founder and former CEO of Nest Labs. And Tony can now add best-selling author to his long list of illustrious accreditation. He just released a book called Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making. This book moved me so much that I was actually in tears at the end of it. I literally sent Tony a screenshot of me crying <laughs> at the end of this book. And the reason why I was so moved is because this book is, is like having a mentor in a box. And it lays out step-by-step step the lessons that Tony has learned on what great, courageous creativity requires. Sometimes, sometimes you don't need like a really sweet therapist <laughs> to mirror back to you what you already probably know is true. Sometimes you need like you need like a hard-ass coach to tell you to like do ten more push-ups and stop crying about it. <laughs> and that's what this book was—a no bullshit mentorship on the business of building something great. And I already know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, uh, I'm not exactly like a tech genius or I'm not an inventor or Bree, stop telling me that I'm an artist because I'm not. And I'm just going to remind you right now that my premise on this show is that if you are alive, if you are breathing, you are a maker. You are creating a masterpiece with every decision and choice that you make in your life. So why not make the most of this? this life that we have and build something beautifully courageous, right? Tony's book build stirred up all of the values that I most seek to engender in my own life. How do we live with courage? How to manifest the unmanifest? How can we learn to see ourselves in relationship with every other and not just human others, but the more than human others of this ecological web-like reality we form part of on this planet. We get into all of that juicy stuff and more in this conversation. So with that, I hope you'll enjoy my time and conversation with the legend that is Tony Fidel 
on episode 10 of season 2 of Unknowing. So, Tony, welcome to Unknowing. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I usually begin by asking each guest about the map that you're given growing up. Usually the map that we're given that is made up by these markers, whether they're handed to us by our parents or culture or what we grow up believing, have a way of shooting us into our trajectory and our creative path. So what was the map that you were handed when you were growing up? Hmm. Well, Brie, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. I, I'm, I'm delighted we're going to get to have this conversation because uh, we have so many great conversations <laughs> together. So uh, hopefully this will also be indicative of that. Um, the map, my map, my map was set out by first, my grandfather who taught me how to use tools and technology, analog technology before the computer to build things, to repair things, to use my hands and my mind and to, you know, have some agency on the world, right? At three and four years old, you can go and you install electrical plugs and you can paint things and you can hammer nails. And like when you have that kind of like, wow, I have power, you know, and I can build things when you're young, it's, it's intoxicating. At least it was for me. So that was the first thing was this intoxicating thing of like, you know, I see something, go tear it apart, put it back together, you know, make it better or whatever it was. So I was doing that. Then after that, you know, because I had this, you know, love of tools. I got a computer. My grandfather helped me get my first computer. He helped, he matched whatever I made that summer as a caddy, caddy for golf in, in Michigan. Um, and, you know, he matched whatever it was. And I got to get my first Apple computer, Apple II. And uh, then that set me on a whole nother path of tools and building and, you know, and, and that self-sufficiency in a way. Uh, that was great. Uh, then the other part of the tone and the tone that was undercurrent that was happening in, in my map was my mom, you know, she was an administrator in, in hospitals. So she mm. helped set up management teams and did those things. But in her off hours and because we moved so much growing up, she would always be designing and decorating the houses. <laughs> so we would move every kind of two or three years. So it was we got to redecorate the house because it's a new house and we got to paint this. And so I always got this, oh, we're going to paint it this color and this thing. So I started getting this kind of affinity for design in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, here's how you put together rooms and here's how you think about things. So it's more of an experience, right? And then my father, he is a, a sale, was a salesman and he would go out and selling Levi's clothes, Levi's jeans back in the 70s. It was a big deal, right? And he was all about fabrics and textures and feel and cuts and so and then prices and markets and, you know, understanding the customer and fashion and these kinds of things to a certain extent, as much as Levi's was at the end of the day uh, in the 70s. And so you kind of grow up with this functional tools. You grow up with this design and management. And my dad is sales and fashion and, you know, looking at these. So I, and then we're moving around a lot in all of this, too. So you put all of these things together. And because we moved around a lot, I didn't really have a click. I didn't get in a click and stay in a click at school. I was always the geek. I always showed up and I was always the new kid, the geek who loved computers and whatever. And I was just never, especially, you know, Revenge of the Nerds from the 80s. You know, I was one of those kids, always on the in the margins, ostracized, bullied, whatever it was. 
But because I had all these other things, this agency on the world and the way of looking at the world, I was able to pull this stuff together and just go, I'm going to cut a different path, mm. a different path. So my map was not a map of the well-worn paths. This was the off-road paths. This is the wilderness paths. That's those, those are the paths I was going down. Mm. That's so wild. I relate to so much of that too, Tony, because growing up with a lot of instability and moving around you know, in Spain in a completely different culture you have that that sense of unknowing. You have to unknow the belonging that everybody else seems to have an access to. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, it sounds to me like your map came with like a built-in rupture, like a built-in embrace of uncertainty and unknowing because there was so much instability. And I want to ask you about that because I'm curious about the connection between embracing uncertainty, embracing unknowing, and the creative impetus, the ability mm-hmm. to find agency and decide, as you just said, I'm going to make my own reality. And so I want to ask you about how that rupture animated that creativity in you. At the very beginning, as you started you know, building your own companies, how did uncertainty carry through as you leapt off the first map of security and into, okay, now I'm going to take unknowing to the next level in the companies mm-hmm. I'm going to start. So, you know, it wasn't conscious. Let's be really clear. It wasn't conscious. <laughs> this was some, never all is. these things came, came, I never is, but it came in consciously. But, you know, the first rupture and the real rupture was I was fitting into the system. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was in, I think I was in first or second grade. And, you know, you would, I was just, you know, I'm not five years old anymore. I'm like seven or eight or something like that. So you, you kind of get your sense of, you know, I have friends and it's just, I just don't go run from play date to play date or whatever. It was like, you're starting to build a, like a little tribe. Hmm. Um, and then we moved and it was gut wrenching, hmm. right? Because I left my friend or two friends at the time. We played together all the time. We lived near each other, you know, and it was gut wrenching. And you're like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, and then we get to the next place. And then you start making attachments, but then you're like, oh, we're moving again. So you don't make as close attachments as you did the first time. And the third time you make even less attachments. You had friends and stuff, but you let me less <laughs> attachments that you hung every word. And we're going to, we're going to like, you know, we're going to um, go to travel together, you know, like thinking mm-hmm. of your lives. We're going to build something together, whatever it is. You, you stop thinking that way. You start thinking much more about yourself and how you manage within these bubbles that you kind of bounce off of, right? Because you're never inside the bubble. You're always bouncing off the bubble. So you make your own bubble. So, you know, though that was the first thing was, was individuation, not just from your parents, right? Um, but individuation from society and saying, I'm not going to play by society's rules. That was the first thing. Then there is, you know, it's scary. I, I always learned to be somewhat scared mm. and, the, and, and embrace it in a way, maybe not always constructively, but embrace it because I was always the new kid. And I don't know if you were ever the new kid. I was always member. And, you know, there's one thing which is being in Spain and being not of the culture. But there's another thing which is after you've been with some, you know, a team or a set of people for five, seven years, you know, you're with them. But when you're the new kid, Wow. Do you know? They're like kind of curious for the first few days, for the first week, and then they're like, yeah, get out of here, you know? And so you're always, am I going to prove myself to them or am I going to just be who I am and maybe they'll follow one mm. day? 
And that's really the latter is what I chose, which is I'm going to just be me. Screw it. I try to fit in. It's not working. They're not going to let me in because of seniority and all that. I'm just going to always go cut against the grain. And so I'm going to be myself. And maybe one day they'll follow me. And so that's really how I was able to get bold with the things I did because I was always counterculture, I guess you could say. I was always counter to the way everything went. And that wasn't great for my parents, obviously, right? Because they're always concerned. Why isn't he in, involved? And why isn't he, you know, just, and I've learned to live that way and embrace that even from the time when you weren't accepted, you know, people would laugh at you when you're a kid, you were what, a geek, whatever it is. You know, when our products come out, you know, when you make a thermostat and people are like, a thermostat? What are you doing? That sounds dumb. And then it becomes successful, right? Right. You know, that's the kind of thing where you go, I'm not, I don't care what the, what the, you know, the barrel of monkeys does. I'm going to do what I do. And I think I have the right way of framing and doing my art the way I want to do art. And let's see if it resonates with people, you know, and, and screw what all the other yeah. people say, because if they're good critics, there are going to be critics that are for you and there's going to be critics against you. Not everything's going to be 100%. If it is 100%, it's either 100% bad or it's 100% milk toast and they don't cover you. <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I like to spend a lot of time on this show talking about how we have to unknow what we think we know to make room for what can be or what could be. And part of that is the courage, as you're naming, to unknow these systems of belonging, to be willing to step out of that, you know, with terror of like, okay, I'm going to build this thing, even though everyone thinks I'm crazy, even though, yep. well, this has never been done before, but what are you talking about? But what? A sexy thermostat? What are you, <laughs> what are you about? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I want to ask you about failure then, because it, it was really beautiful to me in the book, the way that you reframed failure. And now we all know cognitively that we learn from failure. We know this, but we're still terrified of it until it happens. Of course. And then once the worst has happened, you realize like, okay, I'm okay. I can start over. I can learn from what, what happened in that experience. So you take it even further. You say that in building teams, we should hire people who have experienced failure, that these are the best people to go after because they have that knowledge and they have the courage and the bravery then. They're willing to step out in creative, bold ways. Exactly. So I want to ask you about your own experience of failure at General Magic. How did that give you or animate even further that gift of courageous creativity in the following decade? Oh, well, look, when I first started at General Magic and General Magic was, you know, you know, when you look at it now, it's making the iPhone 15 years before the iPhone actually existed. Right. So it was this group of people who had created the Macintosh. They, a lot of them had created Apple, the Apple products. So they were heroes in my eyes. I was, you know, my teens, my late teens. So I attract these people, you know, not in a stalker way, but I watched where they were going with their career as best you could pre-internet. And so I was always fascinated. What are they going to do next? What are they going to do next? So I joined General Magic under that guise. I'm going to go. I didn't join. I had to work real hard to get there. Right. But I worked really hard to get into General Magic. It wasn't just walking in and working for your, working with your and for your heroes. So I was already in there. I was like, oh, my God, I found my tribe, right? Like through college and high school, like I was never part of a tribe. Now I found my tribe. I'm like, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to fit into this tribe and be the best member I could of this tribe. 
right? That's how I felt. I felt so honored. Like I was accepted. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it was life-changing in many ways, you know, uh, emotionally, but definitely physically, if you see the movie, if you know what I mean. Um, but, uh, but so I'm there with my heroes doing the stuff and I'm doing it at a level that I'm trying to do it the way they would do it, mm. or even try to do it a little bit better than they would do it if I could learn and maybe make, make some novel, novel innovations. So I'm trying really hard. And, you know, as we were supposed to ship in a year, then it became two years and three years. And you start going, wait a second, what's going on here? You trust them blindly, right? Mm -hmm. I was just doing whatever, just throwing myself at it, getting rid of all my personal connections and time for anything besides. It's work and work only. I'm going to be with this tribe. And things weren't going well. Hmm. And you start asking other questions and you start going, what? What's going on here? And you start questioning your heroes, you start questioning the things we're doing around and start asking the real questions and getting not just the first layer, but deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you start going, wait a second. Not everybody knows everything. <laughs> Maybe I got to cut my own path. Uh -huh. And that's what I did. I cut my own path. I went against, against the grain. I started asking for permission. I said, I want to work on this project. I think this is the way to do it. And they're like, no, 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 no. So I went to the forgiveness mode. I just started making the project happen in behind the scenes, started pitching all of these companies that were working with General Magic at the time and said, this is better. I know this is better. This other thing's going to fail. This is what you need to do. And one company, Phillips, hooked onto it and let me build a team. I had never even had anybody reporting to me, really, um, to build these kinds of projects. So they said, here, here it is and go make your dream come true. And you're like, oh, my God. You can do this. You know, I, I, it was always this thing of like, don't be afraid to ask, mm. right? Like if you don't ask for help, mm. if you don't tell people and, and give people um, a vision of the future and something they can buy into, well, you're just going to sit there and do the same thing over and over and over. If you want to imagine the world in a new way, manifest that in the world, yeah. get people on board, believe in it from your core body, bring it out from your core and you know, shout at the hilltops. Now, maybe sometimes you're crazy, sure. But other times, if you did it with the right intentions, with the right mission, with understanding what you're trying to solve, people will relate. Now, I'm not a full artist like you are, okay? I'm a, I'm a you know, I'm a quasi thing. <laughs> Art is a very, very different thing. And, it, it, you know, part of my, what I do is art, mm -hmm. but not all of it. There's lots of data things. Art is all opinion. Mm. It's a hundred percent opinion. When it, when too much data enters into art, we know what happens. It goes all bad. It looks like a Marvel movie. So, I guess my point is is that I, what I'm saying right now and the things I've unknown and the things that I pushed forward in, I have to caveat with that is not one hundred percent art as I would define art. Something like you do, and so right. there are there are realities of doing art, you know, you know, finances and all the other stuff. But sometimes there's a little bit more data than what you guys work with. Right. And lucky for you, Tony, I hammer hard the point that if you're listening to the show, you're an artist, because if you're alive, you're making choices 
that are crafting something out of your life. So in some ways, I totally hear you. There is something unique about the realm of art. But in other ways, I'm like, no, no, no. Let's talk about the art of being human. <laughs> okay. That's, that, that's a great place to <laughs> common ground. <laughs> yeah, it relates to everyone. And, and one of the things that I hear you saying in that moment with General Magic is we have to unknow our hero worship. I mean, sometimes we have this idea. We just constantly project the power out there to the, the magic few, you know, to the people who can do these crazy slam dunks, you know, to the people who are selling out arenas. And then we have these ideas, Tony. And one of the things that I think happens is when I hear people say, I'm sure somebody's doing this. I'm sure somebody's going to come up with this idea. Or I'm, I'm sure somebody's going to manifest it. And that's the moment that you're encouraging us and Bill to say, hold up. If you're having that idea, maybe it's yours to give birth to. And the invitation I hear and what you learned in that moment of, you know, quote unquote, failure with general magic was you discovered your own agency again at a new level and mm -hmm. being willing to Absolutely. take your ideas and not wait for the heroes to manifest them, but manifest them yourself. Exactly. And, and you know, it's sometimes, you know, I'm not saying I'm a hero, but sometimes you need to step into those shoes to see what it feels like. And <laughs> heroes are created. They're not born. <laughs> right, right. Right. Heroes are, it's a life journey. It's a path. And so, yes, you have to, it's great to have heroes, mm -hmm. but heroes are human at the end of the day. Heroes, superheroes are fictional. Those are characters in a, in a book or something that we one day aspire to be, but will never be. But, but heroes are human. We can all make the mistakes. And guess what? Just like I was taught, I can build all this from my grandfather. All the stuff we see around us has been built by humans, has been repaired, improved by humans, created from scratch from humans. Well, you're a human. You can do that, too. That's right. And so even when you're with your heroes, you can do that, too. That's how they got there. Mm. What they had was probably most likely besides luck, because you do need luck along the way. I'm not saying I'm not dismissing that. But they had to have the belief in themselves, belief in the team, belief in their mission, because if you don't believe, who is going to believe? Mm. And you have to put that in your work. And, and, and to manifest it and get other people on board. And that is a natural human tendency or a requirement for manifesting new things in, in the world. And no, you just can't, you can hero worship in a little way, but you can't copy what they did. It's a path, it's a process, it's not an endpoint. Mm. Yeah, and cutting your own path. I mean, I see that a lot in spiritual circles too, Tony, where people just guru worship. And in that process, we lose that agency of our own kind of becoming and the the work that it takes for us to transform ourselves daily. And, you know, in the show, I talk a lot about the need to establish a rhythm of life in that creative spiritual trajectory, right? So fueled by the devotion to this vision that you just described, the belief in what it is that we're doing and what we want to build in the world. But that is marked or created by daily discipline, our ability to actually show up <laughs> and do the damn yeah. work. <laughs> so do the work. I loved your um, articulation of handcuffs and heartbeats in your book. And I kind of <laughs> saw the one-to-one -one relationship between handcuffs and heartbeats and the expression of devotion and the daily discipline that creativity requires. So how do you see those connecting and maybe define those for our audience? Well, what happens is during the creative process, you have all kinds of ideas 
And, you know, what do you sift through? What do you pick, you know, and which ones? And each day you could have a different emotion and feel differently about the work you did the day before or the week before, what have you. So you have to understand, like, it's a funnel, right? So you're going to have all this creativity. And then at some point you have to deliver and you have to put those constraints on. The book was this way, too, at some point. I could have went on for months and years writing more and more for the book. But you have to, hey, you have to say, I have to ship this has to go out. The world has to give me feedback on it. It needs to go. So to have that discipline. So heartbeats and handcuffs are really about what are those checkpoints along the way where you choose that you're working diligently on something. You're still in the creative mode. But then at some point you move to the I have to get it out mode. Mm -hmm. And I can't let all of these other emotions and everything go on. I have to get much more in the heads down, get it out and let's see where it goes from here. Because if you're just navel gazing for a long time and you're always taking another creative input, you're always going to have more inspiration. And, but that can happen for the next time and the next time and the next time. Just save that stuff or write it down and then you can come back to it. But you got to ship. And so heartbeats is all about having that rhythm. And the handcuffs is all about knowing when you need to take that funnel and move from the creative mode to the production mode and say, get it out there hmm. and not allowing that. So you have to put your own handcuffs on yourself to hit those milestones and know when you've done. And you also have to have the heartbeats of the diligence to work through that process, regardless of whether you're in creative mode or production mode. Hmm. It's like we all know that deadlines are useful, right? But somehow handcuffs and heartbeats has a different ring to it. It helps me orient <laughs> toward it a little bit because every creative knows that we could go on and on. Like I can I can make tweaks to my album exactly. forever. Or I could be recording conversations for years and never release a single one or a season of the show. So having those deadlines are, is so critical. But I, I really appreciated the language and that was so, was so helpful. Yeah, and the handcuffs you put on yourself. Right. Right. That's yes. the difference. Yes. You know, too many times you might have a manager or someone sure, else who's sure. putting the handcuffs on. You have to have the discipline to put them on yourself yeah. and know when to take them off and put them on. Just like, you know, eating food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, am I going to eat everything? I'm going to eat nothing. You know, you got to find the right path for yourself. Yeah. Those limits can sometimes be the right container to shape our longing into something concrete. Yeah. Constraints are so important. Absolutely. Constraints drive creativity. So when you hear handcuffs, that sounds like a negative way of saying it. It was, you know, alliterative, you know, heartbeats handcuffs. But, you know, constraints was the other way of saying it. And constraints are, whether it's money, time, resources, whatever it may be, if you have too many of them, you need to try to remove some of them because you're never going to be able to get in that creative space. But if you don't have any constraints, you need to put them on and be disciplined on that so that you can actually get something done. And so it's always that that thing of too many constraints, not enough constraints. And as you get more and more success, less and less constraints you have, and that's when it's more important that, than ever that you then you self-limit and put those constraints on yourself. Doesn't mean you're not gonna do something big and bold, but you're gonna do it within some kind of framework so you know you're not going crazy. Or you know when you are going crazy, so you get back on track. Yeah, it sounds like a harmony to me, Tony, the way you're describing it. It's like <laughs> allowing these things to exist in tension and vibrate together and not collapse into just one note or the other, but kind of letting them both exist. I love your I love your analogy of, of you know, of a band or an orchestra. Yeah. Right? Everybody yeah. in that orchestra or that band is playing their own thing, right. but they all come together as a harmony, That's right? right? And that can be a team, but it also can be the processes and the constraints that you have. 
hmm. of certain things opening, other things closing, but they all come together in this this thing. So I, you know, it's never about one leader and everybody follow the follow the leader. It's much more of a band or, or orchestral kind of concept. And I love your, you know, your analogy for that because mm. I use it a lot. Thank you. Well, and Tony, let's dive into that because that harmonization, that kind of holistic thinking, is really imaginative thinking that you, where you can zoom into the particular player, but you can also zoom out and hear the whole orchestra, and it kind of creates a web you know, a web-like way of looking at a project or, you know, creativity. And um, one of my favorite chapters in the book has to be chapter three, making the intangible tangible <laughs> for so many <laughs> obvious reasons. But <laughs> also as an artist, um, I often frequently, as you well know, I don't see the forest of possibility for the trees of my own creativity, <laughs> which <laughs> I think is a shared blind spot for artists and creatives in general, because we are so focused on making the art and the product that it's hard for us to stretch beyond the creation itself of the art to how a fan or audience member is going to then find it, interact with it, connect with it, live with it, and become a diehard like supporter. And we want to kind of, it's like an atrophied muscle for a lot of artists because we just want to make the art. We want the business to be managed or handled or marketed by somebody else. But you laid out such an incredibly detailed path on how we need to weave <laughs> a web of connection to the customer. And one of the ways that you do that is you say, we have to think of the story of our creation. What pain point does it help heal and why? And you described it in a way that became in my mind, not the bad B word, the business, which all artists are like, mm. but instead you helped me see, oh, Tony's just talking about relationships. It's how mm -hmm. can I show up and relate and make my work available to be related with? So how can creatives in particular benefit in your view from getting over ourselves and getting our hands deeper into the weaving of this business side of how our art connects with the audience. Okay. Well, look, we're going to get into a sensitive topic now because what happens is I'm an artist. Don't tell me how to do my work. <laughs> I don't want to be involved by my customers, my fans. Don't tell me how to do my art. I do my art my way. Now that's one form of an artist. I'm not saying that's all artists. I'm saying that's one form, a stereotypical form we've seen. And guess what? That happens in every profession, whether that's industrial design or engineering. Or just leave me alone. Let me do my stuff and someone else take care of all the other BS. Mm. I know what I'm doing. I am, you know, on the mountaintop. You come to me. Okay. There's another one, which is you are so driven by the market and so driven by the finances or driven by business or driven by what customer needs are that you're chasing them. The numbers. Right? Oh, you know, yeah, they're chasing. Oh, my God. Uh, I don't know. What's the latest thing? Uh, you know, some some trap music is like the latest or some EDM thing is the latest thing on the planet. I'm going to go make that. Hmm. It's like, was that really in your heart and soul? No, but I'm going to make it because I'll make money. To me, I'm not talking about that either. Right. Okay, that's another set of people that do exist and fine, go, you know, go do what you do. Same thing with the ego driven artists. I'm talking about people who love what they do. They want to get their message out there to a big enough audience that resonates, mm -hmm. right? That can help them not just be, I'm not being a sellout, but I'm helping them in some way. I'm having a relationship with them. They are being helped by me, you know, just like there are 
books like we're writing, you know, this, the, the, the build book, we write that, or I write that book to help people. A lot of times the music that you write is, is there to help yourself, but also to help others who are resonating with the same kind of experiences, maybe not exactly, but similar kinds of emotive experiences. And that helps them overcome. And you're like, oh, okay, well, this is my audience over time. Well, I'm going to have more of my experiences, but I'm going to share those with those people. And, you know, when you go and figure out what songs you want in an album, well, you're going to maybe make 30 songs, but maybe you're only going to choose 10 of them. Well, which 10 would you choose? The ones you like the best or the ones that you understand your audience a little bit? You understand that all of your songs are still your songs, but you're making a selection based on who the listeners are. Not that you're writing for them, but you're selecting for them. Very different, mm. right? How do you market for them? How do you talk about what it is in, in the songs or what podcast you go on in the marketing? There are so many things that if you can relate and have a relationship with your audience and not be this egotistical, I just, I'm in a vacuum and I, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you come to me, then that shows that you're going to build typically a loyal following. If you deliver to those people, those people listen, and then they go and tell their friends, did you hear this? Did you hear that? You should really, you know, listen to these people, you know, these artists or what have you, read these artists. And so it's a synergistic cycle. It's not just one way from the artist out. That's how we think about it when you're on a stage, right? The artist out and every you're behind this, this wall and they're over there doing their thing. And sometimes they might interact. What if you just tuned in a little bit to them? Not saying you have to drive your art based on it, but you get insights. Find out what they're out. And then maybe those people are going to be incredible fans and they're going to be the best marketing you could ever exist. And they're not just those crazy Stan super fans, <laughs> right? But we're talking about people who really are influential and they'll be, you know, I, I, I'm not a singer, right? But I'm on your podcast <laughs> because we, what we do is so similar in a way from the human nature side of things, that I want to go out with this message to your audience. And you wanted me on, obviously, you know, <laughs> right? And so I want to branch out to lots of different people. Maybe as an artist, you might want to consider the same thing. How do you branch out to other people and get your message out there wider? And that means you need to tune in different groups of people mm. and understand what they're about and build those relationships. That frame of relationship building, I think was such a game changer for me as I read your book, because it humanized it for me, Tony. It made it personal. It made it relatable. And it made it reciprocal. And, you know, one of the things that I think has been a gift in the way that the music industry has kind of collapsed <laughs> or is collapsing mm -hmm. in on itself in this impossible bottleneck of, of our current time is that it is activating some more of these, you know, fan direct support to artist platforms. And in that, there's sort of this, the, the fourth wall has been broken and artists and fans are now interacting directly and getting that feedback directly. And I know that that's been hugely encouraging and animating in my own life as an artist, but I know that many others are experiencing that as well. But I really like that you say, this is a quote from your book where you say, a good story is an act of empathy. Um, and I want to ask you, how has being this sort of web weaver to the customer, that attention to detail to the customer experience over the years, how has that shifted your focus increasingly from seeing yourself as a me to understanding yourself as a we? <laughs> the me to we transition, transformation. Um, you know, 
when it was in the early days of General Magic, like I said, I was trying to impress the people around me, the geeks around me, the people who I saw as my heroes. And I'm going to impress them with my talents and what I can do. So it was about me saying, I'm, I can be like you, similar. I'm maybe not you. I'm not, you know, but I could be close. You know, I, I think I can get there. And so you do that and you end up trying to please those people. Hmm. Um, but you clearly find out, especially through the, the tra- you know, the disaster that was general magic, was that's not the right way to think about things. It's not about impressing the people around you to get uh, a, your mission out and to have success happen. It's about engaging an audience and giving them, at least for the things I do, superpowers, something that's transformative in their lives. You know, with artists and with singer-songwriters, you know, may, you might be able to heal their pain or explain their pain in some way, in some, you know, amorphous way. And you brought them superpowers. They're like, oh, my God, I have agency again because you helped me discover or figure out what it is I'm going through, right, through that journey. The same thing goes for making great products, whether those are all software or, you know, or hardware and software, all these different things. And... At the end of the day, it's really about understanding the customer, their pain, and being empathetic with that pain and delivering them a solution that's a painkiller. There's a lot of things that are more like um, entertainment. And you can entertain for a little while, but it doesn't really engage. It doesn't transform, but you've sucked up some of their time and it it was a business and it works. But when you're really empathetic and you want this to be a tool for people or something that's really amazing, they go back to it all the time and they refer to it all the time. And I think that's a great product. That's a great piece of art, right? Because it touched in a certain way deeply and it solved some pain for them. It wasn't just entertainment. It wasn't just fun. But it's something that had them learn something about themselves or give them a special power or something that made them bigger than themselves and help them to go to that next level of, you know, next step in their journey. It makes me think about how what is truly personal is truly universal. Because when we touch on Mm -hmm. that point of authenticity in ourselves, when we're willing to look at our own pain points as artists and be vulnerable about that in our creativity, then we're animating that same vulnerable courage in others to look at their pain points and see them not as weakness, but as opportunity as possibility and as gifts and you know one of the ways that you've go ahead the big thing we t- we talk about failure we talk about these other things failure only happens if you give up huh that's true failure failure is only if you is only if you stop doing what it is hmm. if if you fail and you learn from it and you really assess it and then you move on and you and you incorporate those learnings then you go to the next one and maybe you'll be successful. Maybe before. But life is all about that. Now, think about this. When you were learning to walk when you were a kid or you have kids, right? You've seen them walk. Well, when they were trying to walk, they failed a thousand times to walk. <laughs> and what did you do? You cheered them on every time. Oh, my God. They, stand, they stood for two seconds. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> they fell over. That's fine. They keep failing. And then sooner or later, they learn and they find their path. Could you imagine if kids the entire time said, you know, every time if they didn't stand up, they didn't start walking the very first step. We always say, oh, you're a failure. You're a failure. You'll never walk. Well, that's how we are in business. That's how we are in art. That's how we are with all these things. Why do we put that stuff on us? 
if we have a great relationship and we have a community of people around us, we go, what did you, yeah, okay, you failed and I'm here and I'll support you in that. But at the same time, what did you learn? What are you and helping people to go to that next step and picking themselves up, learn from it and not hopefully not make that mistake again. Maybe they'll make a different one, but they keep moving forward. You know, my first set of my career was tons and tons and tons of failure, Ugh. right? Until there was success. Yeah. You, right? you tell the story of the 80, the, the 80 pitches, the 80 failed pitches. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, I felt that in the bubble burst in, in the, you know, the year 2000, the tech bubble burst. And you said you gave 80 pitches. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that happens. And that, that can happen with your art too. I, how many songs oh, did I put sure. out? But if you don't have that relationship to your customer. If you don't take feedback and you're in this bubble, right, and you don't learn why that didn't work, because sometimes you might have a, an amazing song, you just didn't market it right. Mm, mm-hmm. You got to put the marketing in. Yeah. You got to, if you believe in it, then get behind it and tell people about it. Mm. We don't just make art and then we don't do anything with it. That's how a lot of artists think. No, you got to be part of the process. Like this book thing, I'll tell you. You know, you would think, oh, you just hire these people and it's done. Oh, no. <laughs> this is as much work, if not more work, than an iPod or an iPhone, a Nest thermostat, whatever it is. It's more work because you have less resources. It's more constrained. And there's only a certain number of experts in the field, right? Um, and so it takes a team. Even if you have great art, it might be a critical success. But is it going to be a business success? Because at the end of the day, I'm sorry, every business whether it's art or otherwise, is a business. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. It's a business. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I know you say, oh, it's a sellout or whatever. No, no, no. No, you're not a sellout. No, you're and not I, a sellout if you're trying to just do business. That's part of the, the reframe that was so helpful for me was understanding business is the art of relationships. So it's like I'm clearly in, I'm, I'm already invested in this art of relationality. So, <laughs> so yes, what's my issue so. with this word marketing or thinking about a team? And obviously, this is one of the ways that you've personally challenged me is in my stubbornness around doing everything myself, which I think is another pitfall for creatives, right? Um, I'll Absolutely. never forget the morning when you simply looked at me and said, you know, you don't have to do this alone, right? Like you don't have to do this alone anymore. You can ask for help. And it made me cry, Tony, because you put your finger on something. That, I didn't mean to do that. I don't know, but I think- <laughs> listeners, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good cry. It was like, you, you put your finger on something that I think many creatives and artists go through, which is that, you know, that process of individuation that you talked about at the beginning- is such a big push to find our own voice, to find our unique perspective, to discover what our unique approaches to painting or music or writing. We spend so much time independently creating that sometimes we need reminding that creativity only thrives with collaboration with a team. Absolutely, with a team. Yeah, what I felt you did that morning was help me see where my pride was getting in the way as an artist. I was struggling with my own vulnerable need for help, which is human, which is what we all need to create is collaboration, to see myself as part of this web-like reality in which we're all intertwined. And you helped remind me that I'm not a me, I'm a we. And so I often say that the process is the product and you mirrored to me in that moment where I was out of alignment, not just with my own potential, but with the kind of art that I want to weave in the world. So. Talk to us about that pride that we all struggle with, with the I can do it myself and how that keeps us from our fulfillment as communal creators. Well, I learned 
Um, I think maybe from the earliest days of my grandfather, he taught me tools and to build things mm -hmm. and he mentored me, right? And this book is an encyclopedia of mentorship. And that's what we're trying to do is give back. You have to understand that you, and you, we talked about the map at the beginning of this, this conversation, which is what was that map? And that map wasn't just things that you were given, but those were mentorship things that were happening along the way. And you had mentors when you were younger. Who are your mentors as you get older, right? It's not like you just stop after school and you're done. You, you should be having mentors all the way through your life. And you should become a mentor as well at a certain stage. You know, if people helped you, you've got to give back. And so when you think about this and you think about individuation, yes, you need to individuate and understand as an artist or whatever what it is and cut your path. But like you said, you need to go back and understand that you have to work with inside of a team of people. The reason why you cut individuated was because you were getting away from the, all those elements who were negative to you, who were saying you can't do it, or you're going to fail, or they didn't believe in you, or they are jealous or envious or whatever it was. You were individuating away from that to say, I'm my own person. Now what you need to do is build a team around you of people who believe in your thing and you believe in their thing and building relationship. And maybe you'll work together but at least you build a relationship of a community so that maybe you work together now, you stop working together, you come back together and work together in the future. But it's having a community around you so you can pick each other up when the other one's down, when you can you know, ask for advice, or maybe you'll work together. So just because you individuated doesn't mean you're not going to stay individuated when you work with people and, and have relationships with people who are supportive of what you do. It's a two-way street. You support them as what they do. You're paying it forward sometimes. Sometimes they're paying it forward, but it is not a transaction. It's mm. a relationship that can last for decades, mm. right? And to make sure that sometimes when you're leaning on somebody else to help you in that in your tribe, well, they might be leaning on you sometimes and you just give back and you don't know where it's going to end up 10 years, 20 years down the road. It could be an amazing thing. And it's just that reciprocation. That's what society runs on, not transactions relationships. Mm, that's so beautiful, Tony. And it's not its not just true for society, but it's also just true for our environment, for the ecological reality that we're part of, which is that this is a system of relationships, that we are intertwined in our world, that our actions have impact, and that we are in this reciprocal exchange. What we do matters. And so I want to ask you, because I know uh, uh, just, to Just to reframe that just a little ways, we are living on the planet. We are not living with the planet. Mm, it's mm -hmm. a very different thing when we're just extracting, we're saying That's it's right. our planet. Yeah. It's not our planet. It's our planet with all of the other creatures and nature and everything together. And we need to learn to live with them, not be masters over it. You know, it, it feels like that ego artist, we know everything, as opposed to working together. Right, so, right. It's a lesson we all have to learn. Yeah. I find that that reciprocity at least within me, is activated when humility is balanced with my yearning to create, a creative longing, a vision for what could be. What's activated then is a creativity that serves not just ourselves, but others. As opposed to, or in contrast to what you're describing as the ego artist, which is sort of like, you know, entitlement meets insecure ambition that's motivated by fame, money, or success. And so I want to ask you, Tony, as we begin to wrap up, 
how this we way of thinking, how this, you know, outlook in which you see yourself as a web weaver in relationships and business and creativity, how is it an expression of your desire for ecological responsibility as well? I think when you broaden your viewpoint and you start going, the systems that we've created on this planet as humans, whether that's, you know, our societal systems, whether it's our industrial systems, transportation systems, we created all those. We created this mess. So if you take a step back and go humans, not me, but humans kind in general did, maybe some earlier generations or whatever, they created this mess. Well, it isn't going to get fixed by anybody else. And to me, I see it as an opportunity. We need to fix it. And we can sit here and go me, me, me and be all individualistic about it. And like, I just want to, you know, only go on private flights and I only want the, you know, five-star meals and, you know, and screw everyone else. I'm just here to, that is just so hedonistic. That's so selfish. You know, the reason why is, is typically those people, a lot of them, you know, and I was like this too, you're younger. You don't have kids. You don't really understand. You're still individuating. I want what I want. What's really ugly to me is when you have people who have teams of people, businesses, they have families, they have families themselves, they have kids, they might even have grandkids, and they sit here and go, screw it, I'm not going to be on the planet very long. I don't need to do anything. It's like, no, who else is going to do it? There's only a certain number of people with the means, the resources, the networks, to be able to fix this problem. We can't just say, oh, we're big business. Now all of you you people in the world, all you consumers in the world, you change something and it'll all be fine. No, the big businesses are the ones who created these systems. We're the ones who have to fix them, whether that's inside those things or fix, you know, build new companies to fix those. So it's imperative that we take this scarce set of resources, money, people, brains, um, technology, and really focus ourselves on this climate crisis, this existential problem for our future generations, because we are the only people who are going to fix it. Okay. And when I see things like the metaverse being bandied around and all this money and, and, and stuff going into this metaverse, where what are we trying to do? We're trying to put glasses and, 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 and block out all of our senses so we can all be immersed in some digital world all the time. You know what I say? I was like, how is that better? What pain are we solving? Sure, there's certain times when it is useful. For a lot of times, it's not. It's escape. It's escape. Mm -hmm. And even worse, though, it's escape not just from society. It's an escape from relationships. It is the most selfish thing you can do. Why? And here's what I say. In the metaverse, you cannot look into each other's eyes. You will never be able to look into each other's eyes in the, in the metaverse. Even the Zoom, even as crude as Zoom is, I can look in your eyes and I can see emotion. I can see what you're thinking. I can see if you're bullshitting me. It'll only get better over time. But the metaverse is not like that. So mm -hmm. fuck the metaverse. Mm -hmm. You can't ever look into someone else's eyes and get that soulful connection to know if we're really talking on the same level. And when we're building and spending all this time trying to put people in more boxes and lose more and more connections so that we can mediate it with technology. We're on the wrong path and we're not focusing on the path of existential crisis that we have, which is climate change. So fuck the metaverse, work on climate, work on stuff that matters to society, reconnecting people to the, each other and reconnecting ourselves to the planet. That's what matters right now. 
not this put ourselves in these technology mediated boxes that we can just get sold more things or entertain, you know, 24 seven. Oh, I'll preach. I mean, I'm reading a book right now. (laughs) It's called Matter and Desire by Andreas Weber, who's a philosopher in Germany. And he says that ecology is erotic because it's relational and everything hinges on that capacity. The more we deepen into our relationship to our own bodies, the more we can activate and sense that relationship with the rest of the natural world and with the human and more than human world. And so, you know, you have a chapter where you talk about being a CEO and you describe having printed out sheets that had that week's priorities and goals to keep the company focused. And I <laughs> I loved that little random detail of your, your sort of your method of leadership because it's true of the human experience that we get off track. Like you just said, it's like here we are getting all jazzed about the metaverse, which is just pulling us out of relationality. And I remember once at dinner, I shared with you that that my boys and I have a value statement, which is that we seek to be kind and courageous creators with curiosity and compassion. And I want to ask you now, as we wrap up, how would you articulate your values and, and how are those like a printed sheet that we can hold in front of us week to week to kind of keep us focused, oh you know, on what really matters and what we need to get done in this world? Ooh, okay. That's a big question. Um, I think first and foremost is one, the biggest inhibitor of an individual, you know, given relatively, oh, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy needs, assuming that they have enough to be, to, to be self-sustaining. Um, the biggest inhibitor of our paths forward is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Usually it's, you know, we say, oh, I don't know if I can do this. We're, we always have, are filled with self-doubt. And so you have to understand everybody's filled with self-doubt. It's not just one person's better than the other. It's just one person has, was able to conquer it for a little while and get over it and then try to manifest something in the world. So one is understand that the biggest limitation you have is typically yourself, assuming you have, you know, the, enough resources. Then the other one is if you're going to do something, do something that's meaningful and you're solving a pain for yourself, society, for the planet. Make sure you're solving pain for because so, there's so much around it. And pain can be, you know, emotional. It could be physical. It could be all kinds of financial. It could be all kinds of different. But if you're solving a pain that someone else has for the right reasons and helping pulling them up and giving them that superpower, you're probably on the right track. And then the third thing would really be is, you know, if you don't have butterflies in your stomach, hmm. you're probably not taking enough risk. Whew. Okay. Either, or you're not paying attention and you're just going to get, you know, swamped because you're just like, hey, it's all great. And it's all wonderful. But if you're not taking on enough risk, then you're just sitting there calmly about it. You're probably not paying attention. So you need to amp it up and take on more risk within reason, not crazy risk, but enough that you feel uncomfortable. Mm. Like this book is still uncomfortable for me, mm. right? I've, you know, I've talked to so many people and people have read it and they love it, and all, but it's still uncomfortable for me because it's very vulnerable, right? And I really put it out there, you know, <laughs> I made you cry. I'm sorry if I made you cry. <laughs> you but my, I, it was, you know, you're like this technology geek from Silicon Valley made you cry. <laughs> made how cry. many times a Mark... <laughs> 
how does how many times did Mark Zuckerberg, you know, create you know make something that makes you cry? You probably yeah. cry and like, oh my God, where's different is kind of society tears. going? <laughs> yeah, different kind of tears. So I guess my point is being so vulnerable and putting myself out there, even with all the success, I could have just sat back and wrote a biography. That's not what this is. I could have just simply did that. No. Being very vulnerable, taking real risks. Mm. I still have butterflies in my stomach. That probably means you're on the right path, Ugh. right? Because you're going to do something that's different. You're differentiated that people are going to care about, that it's going to engage. If you're just doing me too, milk toast, whatever, you know, who cares? Right. Right? It's the ultimate endorsement for unknowing. Um, but I wanted to ask if in closing you would read just two little paragraphs at the very end of your book. Do you have it on hand? If not, oh, do I'll I have it. it? I can, I can, I can get it. Pull it. Uh, why don't you read it? No, I want you. You, you, I, you I want me to read it? it? Yeah, I want you to read it. Okay. I'll be the voice um, for you, Tony, and, and just reading these closing words, which so moved me. And you've just talked about. Here's what you say at the end of your book: The thing holding most people back is themselves. They think they know what they can do and who they're supposed to be, and they don't explore beyond those boundaries. Until someone comes along and pushes them, willingly or unwillingly, happily and unhappily, in doing something more, in discovering a well of creativity or willpower or brilliance that they never realized they had. Tony, you have done that for so many people. You've been a web weaver of possibility, connecting what could be to reality. And you've done that in my own life personally. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about your new book, Build, and for sharing your wisdom with us. Bree, thank you for the time. It's always fun to talk to you. It's We always get into really deep conversations. Uh, you know, uh, we're being vulnerable right now for your audience. And sure I are. think, you know, it, it, hopefully it will resonate with them because this is truly a human path that we all have to walk. I don't care what walk of life you're in, but we're mm -hmm. all going to walk this path. And we are only here once, you know, no matter as how much we wouldn't think, at least I think we're only here once. And so, I hope that this book helps people, helps to frame, to understand that even when you see success, it's probably built on a lot of failure mm -hmm. and to keep going, don't mm -hmm. stop. And that goes for every walk of life, including artists. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Brie. Thanks so much. It was wonderful. So we're learning how to unknow the maps, the maps of the makers before us, those who have created incredible things, and learn how to trust our inner compass in seeing ourselves as having that same agency, brilliant capacity to imagine and manifest and build something beautiful out of our lives. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. I loved it when Tony said that constraints drive creativity. And when you think about it, it's through the womb that new life is formed. So there's always a container that carries creativity into manifestation, into what's possible. So I wonder what would happen if we were to reframe how we understand constraints. So maybe it's not a problem that you don't have an endless budget. 
or endless amounts of time to work. I remember some of the most productive, creative musical days of my life were when I had two little ones at home and was juggling at full speed, you know, 16 plates at once. I remember there was a time when I would run into my studio whenever I had like 20 minute breaks where the kids were down, both of them at the same time miraculously sleeping, and record vocal takes. And some of, the, some of those vocal takes were the best vocal takes I'd ever done. So constraints are not a problem. Let's reframe how we see our constraints and see them as the womb, the necessary container for our creative endeavors. Second piece of True North wisdom. I loved it when Tony said that everything operates not in transactions, but in relationship. That is how life and creativity flow and are made manifest to the utmost of, of the potential of what could be, is by focusing on the relationality at play. As I shared in the conversation, I had a real aha moment reading Tony's book in understanding the business side of being a creative in a new way by thinking about it as the art of relationships. We all kind of cringe when we think about ideas and terms and necessities like marketing. And now that we live in a world where social media is the platform through which most of us are able to get our work out, it can get overwhelming and feel slimy and gross real quickly. But what I've found is that if the focus, as Tony said, is about connection, relationships, and making what it is that we make more relatable and accessible to more people, then it feels authentic. It's honest. It's just showing up and offering our full selves to the world, regardless of what it is that you do. I say it on the show a lot. The process is the product. So if the focus is on building relationships, then it's not about getting numbers or downloads. It's about connection. And that that feels good to me. Final piece of True North wisdom. I was blown away by the closing remarks of Tony when he said that we are the number one block. We ourselves are what blocks our own potential, our own capacity to imagine greatly, to have the kind of courage and bravery it takes to be a builder of something meaningful in the world. So I guess my question for you today is, how are you getting in your own way? What limited stories, what limited beliefs are you hanging on to? And listen, it's always going to be easier to be an audience member, to sit on the sidelines of your own life, comfortably critiquing everything else that's happening around you. But wouldn't you rather know what it feels like to have the courage to vulnerably unfurl in the spotlight and make something, build something? And one day, when the scene of your life comes to a close to say that you're satisfied because you know that you gave it your all, that you gave your heart away with every creative endeavor. That's what I want. I don't know about you. That's it for today's episode. If these conversations are meaningful to you, if they are helping you become more of a maker, more of a brave builder, then I want to invite you to join my community to become part of the Unknowing Collective. 
This show is made possible only by the generosity of its supporters, and there's two ways you can support. Both of them are listed in the show notes below, so be sure to check them out. As Tony said, we're all in this together, and creativity is a collective communal endeavor. So I hope you'll consider joining me in making unknowing possible. And in closing, as you know, I like to end each season with a specific quote. The quote for season two is one from Rebecca Solnit. Leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from and where you will go.